Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Douglas Wilson. This is episode 301. 301. So I wanted to talk about the doctrine of egalitarianism. And I wanted to talk about one particular aspect of it, one uh, peculiar aspect of it. Egalitarianism, egalitarianism is a doctrine promulgated by people who believe themselves to be innately superior. Again, let me say that again. And, and this is a uh, in other words, they're a walking embodiment of a contradiction to their position. Egalitarianism is a doctrine promulgated by people who believe themselves to be innately superior. Uh, one of the one of the features of the progressive movement, and this is this was true throughout the entire 20th century, well, before that, but let's say through the whole 20th century and into the 21st century, is how blithely the progressives are willing to make decisions for other people as though they know better. William F. Buckley wants to find a liberal as someone who reaches into the shower. You're taking a shower, and they, they reach into the shower to adjust the temperature for you. They know better than you do what should be done in that circumstance. They, they want to move people around like they're just so many inert chess pieces. But as Thomas Sowell points out in, a, uh, in his book, Social Justice Fallacies, a fool, and, and this was quite a striking um, quote, and I think, believe he's quoting somebody else, but he says, a fool can put on his coat better than a wise man can do it for him. A fool can put on his coat better than a wise man can do it for him. No one, how, no matter how smart they are, no matter how educated they are, no matter how many Ivy League degrees they have behind their name, they don't know anywhere close to what you would need to know in order to run a civilization, in order to run people's lives for them. But this is, we might call this the smart person fallacy. This person believes himself to be innately superior, and so consequently, he can make decisions that impose on the great mass of people out there in terms of this dogma that he is denying by the mere fact that he is uh, taking uh, the prerogative of making these decisions upon himself. This whole problem uh, runs up into what Hayek identified as the knowledge problem. There is absolutely no way that we, with our finite pea brains, could even begin to track the number of variables that we would need to be able to track in order to figure out when to deliver gas to this particular gas station. So the smart people, the superior people, the people who want to impose egalitarianism on all the regular people, taking away the decision-making ability of those regular people because the superior people are here to impose their views of equality. All right, you following me? Following what I'm saying? Egalitarianism can only be imposed on a populace if some superior class of person does it, or 
what is going to happen is one class of person believing himself to be uh, superior attempts it. Take a, a common problem. The superior person looks at a busy intersection and he sees a gas station on each of the four corners. There's a gas station A, gas station B, gas station C, gas station D. And all he can think of is how chaotic it is, how disorganized it is, how inefficient it is. Uh, uh, these superior people love words like efficiency. And he thinks, okay, why, why don't we just have one gas station? Why don't we declutter that intersection? Let's just outlaw the gas stations. Let's the independent free agent gas stations. And let's just build one mega gas station and with accessible entry ramps and exit ramps, and we'll have the smart people design it and so on. Well, what's going to happen is you're going to wind up with those four gas stations gone. You're going to find one slick, big, efficient gas station sitting there at the corner, and there won't be any gas. In the disorganized situation, there was lots of gas and price wars. The gas was plentiful and relatively cheap. And with one gas station, it's far more efficient. And one of the reasons it's more efficient is there's no gas there, and so there are no cars, and everything's clean and tidy. Always will be God. Continuing on with it, podcast episode 301, we come now to our hamartiology section. Sin is sin, and the study of sin can be good or bad. We are doing it, I need to tell you, the good way, meaning that we are calling our efforts hamartiology. We've come to a word that is what we might call an emphatic sin, a sin that has no ambiguity or nuance to it. The word is theostuges, theostuges, T-H-E-O-S-T-U-G-E-S, theostuges, and it simply means hater of God. It comes in the midst of a list of sins, and as I've said before, probably on this podcast, in the New Testament, sins are like grapes, they come in bunches. Uh, notice when, when sins are listed in the New Testament, how they oftentimes come in clusters. Well, here it is. This is the one place it, this word is used. It's in Romans 1.30, and we jump in, in media race, into, a, into the middle of a cluster. Backbiters, haters of God, there it is, theostuges, theostuges, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. So, one lesson for us is that if we want to figure out if something is a sin or not, look at the company it keeps. And if we want to figure out if something is a serious sin, look at the company it keeps. This word, theostuges, is pretty stark, and it sets the tone, right? Haters of God. Uh, there's no possible way where haters of God could be a good thing. But look what else is there. I'm interested in the fact that disobedient to parents is included. And you say, oh, I don't backbite. I don't hate God. I'm not despiteful. I'm not proud. I'm not boaster. And then you get to disobedient to parents and you go, oh, I've done that. This passage is from Romans 1, where Paul sets out the hard facts of mankind's rebellion against God. It is not as though we wandered off by accident. As he says earlier in the chapter, we suppress our knowledge of God deliberately. We suppress the truth about God 
in unrighteousness. And we do it. We do it willfully. The root from which this springs is simply this, hatred of God. So the the root sin, hatred of God, avoidance of God, detestation of God, is the reason why we don't want to, going back earlier in in Romans 1, why we don't want to acknowledge God as God, and we don't want to give him thanks. We don't want to acknowledge God as God, and we don't want to give him thanks. This means that everyone knows God. Paul says, the truth about God is evident through the things that have been made. The truth about God is evident through the things that have been made. But because of our hatred of God, we suppress that truth in unrighteousness. So think about knowledge of God as um, an overinflated beach ball, and you're standing waist deep in a swimming pool. And someone hands you this beach ball, and they say, here, hold this under the water. Hold this under the surface of the water. That beach ball is knowledge of God. And the person who's standing there knows that he's holding He's, he, he's holding down. He's suppressing this knowledge of God. He's holding it under the surface of the water. And it's a dicey operation because his arms are quivering, right? right? And th- therefore, it's the job of the apologist not to assume that his protestations of ignorance of God's being are well-intentioned or are sincere, because they are not. The apologist needs to know that the person that you're witnessing to, the person that you're sharing the gospel with, knows the, knows the truth of what you're saying as well as you do, but he's holding it under the surface of the water. He has this knowledge of God that he knows is there because his hands are on it. That's why his arms are quivering. At the same time, he can say, and one part of him believes it, I don't see any evidence for God at all. The reason, but the reason he doesn't see the evidence for God is that he's the one holding it under the surface of the water. God don't never change So then, continuing on with episode 301 of the podcast, uh, my book uh, that I want to review this time is Men and Marriage by George Gilder. Now, I think um, I've read this before. I just, Canon Press just re-released Men and Marriage in a new edition, and I just listened to the audio of it again, went through it again. Uh, as I've mentioned in other settings, I am greatly indebted to George Gilder for a number of things, his work and technology and his insights with regard to marriage and and with regard to um, his work on intelligent design. He was one of the founders of the Discovery Institute, which was what was behind uh, the intelligent design movement, which is done a lot of damage to contemporary Darwinism, and so on. So he's been, economics, technology, his book on Israel was great. But Men in Marriage, it was the um, something I, I became acquainted with very early on. Back in 1980, it was 80 or 81, I read his economics book, Wealth and Poverty. And I read it, and he was sort of... Um, one of the movers and shakers in the in the supply side revolution, Ronald Reagan read it, quoted Gilder a lot, and I read Wealth and Poverty back then, probably because everybody in the country was reading it, and I really liked it. It was really a good book, and so I thought, well, man, I wonder if I can, uh, I wonder if this author, this is a great author. I wonder if I can 
find anything else he's written. And I, I got his book, Sexual Suicide. Sexual Suicide was an earlier, um, like an earlier form of the arguments in men in marriage. So there was sexual suicide, and then it was re-released in an expanded, updated way in men in marriage. So I read sexual suicide and then read uh, men in marriage. I really, it was just really good stuff. Now, you have to factor in certain things. Gilder was writing in a different era, and he was coming out of a different era. Gilder is what you might call a New England blue blood. He uh, started his political life as a what we would call a rhino, Republican in name only. Uh, he was there was a, a thing called the Ripon Society that he was part of, but he was uh, a liberal Republican in in that time who refused to go along with a denial of the way the world was. In other words, he knew that men and women were uh, necessarily different, there was, and there wasn't anything that was going to be done about it. And if we tried to deny it, we were just going to wreck everything. So he was basically, I would call him a sexual realist. He, uh, and consequently, he drew the ire of 1970s feminists who thought he was the worst man ever. And so he, but he stuck to his guns and gradually became more and more uh, conservative, more pronounced in his conservatism. So if you read Men in Marriage, there are sections there that sound like he's talking as though we all climb down from the trees and and our our sexuality evolving right along with the rest of us, right? But fast forward and realize the the um, impact that he's had in the destruction of Darwinism with intelligent design, and you can see the seeds of that in the early books. The in other words, the healthy stuff won out over the unhealthy stuff. So what what Gilder in Men and Marriage sometimes talks about in evolutionary categories. I would talk about in terms of creation and fall. In other words, he talks as though men are barbarians and women are the civilizers. All right, men are barbarians and women are, are the ones who, who tame the male. But the taming is, has to have scare quotes put around it, right? Now, what some people talk about, you know, ro- roaming packs of barbarian young men who like to conquer and pillage and just give free rein to their testosterone. So they, they are, uh, it's a boatload of Vikings about to descend upon an unsuspecting village where they could rape and pillage, where it, you, know, you basically have this testosterone festival. And what happens in the way Gilder describes it, when you have a sexual encounter between a man and a woman, the, the woman is betting far more than the man is, right? The woman is betting in, in earthly, physical, carnal terms because she is the one who can get pregnant. She's the one who can get pregnant. So consequently, as a result of that sexual union. So if he has a one-night stand and then blows down the road uh, the day after, she is the one left with holding, literally holding the baby, right? And she has to figure out a way to take care of the baby while at the same time earning enough money to provide for the baby. So that 
sexual encounter is one of the reasons why the woman is going to be far more innately conservative about chance sexual encounters than the men will be, right? Now, what someone is a secularist could talk about all of this in evolutionary terms. I would talk about it in terms of the fall. Men do have a great deal of testosterone sloshing around inside them, and so consequently, they do tend to behave that way. Now, what Gilder points out, what, what he argues, is that it's in the woman's great interest to have the man stay and not head off with his boatload of Vikings or not head off with the rest of the motorcycle gang. That's, that's in her best interest. So she wants to entice him to stay. It's not, it doesn't take a great deal of enticement for her to get him to sleep with her. But how do you entice him to stay in a way that is going to reinforce his masculinity? Because heading down the road for a life of freebooting piracy is what he thinks of as masculine. And he thinks that way, some would say, because of evolution. I would say because of the fall, because of sin, right? But he wants to do that. If she wants to persuade him to stay, to put it in stark terms, someone might ask, one of the men might say, what's in it for me? If I, if I remain, what is there? And what is there that's masculine for me? And the exchange that's made is basically, if you stay, you can run everything. If you stay, you can be in charge. Now, this is what Gilder means by the man submitting his sexuality to the woman. But when the man submits his sexuality to the woman's sexuality, the end result of that is the woman crowns him. We can point to this as the genesis of patriarchy. Who creates patriarchy? Well, the women. The women who persuade the men to remain and who say it's more important to me that he stick around and be the chief or the king or the head. That's more important to me than for me to retain my independence and him be gone. Now, flying over a lot of material here, I just having gone through men in marriage again, I didn't learn as much as I did the earlier times through. But it's still good. It's still healthy. It's still something that I think a lot of you would be blessed by. Men in Marriage by George Gilder. Mm-hmm.